0: Hello and welcome to my podcast, Land of the Golden Sunset. This is episode number 12, entitled The Restoration of Charles II, King William of Orange, and the Siege of Derry, 1690. Just a gentle reminder that you can become a patron of these podcasts by visiting www.landofthegoldensunset.podbean.com. Thank you. And enjoy. The horrors of England's invasions of Ireland and the resultant plantations had sent thousands of dispossessed Irish to foreign lands. When the Rump Parliament in London passed the Act of Settlement in 1652, After the Cromwellian conquest of Ireland, its purpose was twofold. First, it was to provide for summary execution of the leaders and supporters of the Irish rebellion of sixteen forty one. Second, it was to confiscate sufficient land in Ireland as was necessary to repay the loans advanced by the City of London under the Adventurers' Acts of the 1640s to pay for the war and to reward the soldiers who had engaged in the war, almost all of whom sold on their interests to third parties. By 1652 the policy was achieved by the confiscation of almost all Catholic-owned land in Ireland, something that also served to punish the Irish Catholics for their rebellion and war against Parliament. The restoration of Charles II had brought or allowed many to return, but the Act of Explanation had sent some emigrating once more. The Act of Explanation, 1665, obliged the Cromwellian settlers to surrender one-third of their grants and thus provided a reserve of land from which Roman Catholics were partially compensated for losses under the Commonwealth. Those who refused to be driven out again began to disturb the public peace, and come down on the planters. Some began to beg from door to door, and, with the tattered title-deeds of their former estates in their pockets, brought much sympathy from their fellow countrymen, and obtained much of that sympathy and relief for which the Irish are well known and never slow to give. Others more daring, joined the outlaws who levied blackmail on the planters who were glad to pay the amount demanded especially if they were living on the property of the outlaw demanding the money in mayo roscommon and leitram colonel dudley costello one of the dispossessed landowners kept that district disturbed until 1667. The Costello landowners lost title to their lands to Theobald Dillon, first Viscount Dillon. Dudley Costello was an officer in the army of the Confederate Catholics in 1642 and later became a colonel in the Spanish army. Returning to Ireland after the restoration and disappointed by his failure to recover the family estates, he devoted the rest of his life as a rapparee to wreaking vengeance on the new Dillon proprietors of his land until his death in 1667. The dispossessed Costigans in Leash defied all the efforts of Lord Mount where they had around 100 outlaws in the neighbourhood of Leyland Bridge. Also at that time outlaws kept the counties of Tipperary, Waterford, Cork and Kerry terrorised. But in Ulster their numbers were greatest. It was the province which had suffered most from the plantations, and therefore contained the greatest proportion of the dispossessed. The most noted outlaw leader was Redmond O'Hanlon, whose exploits were talked of at every fireside, and whose fame reached France and beyond. He lived chiefly in the Fuse Mountains, and hid in the forests and caves, and for over ten years kept the counties of Armagh and Tyrone in subjection and fear, he issued passes and exacted vengeance when his friends were molested. It was debt to anyone who would attempt to betray him. But one of the closest to him eventually took the thirty pieces of silver. His cousin Arto Hanlon, one of his outlaws, for one hundred pounds, shot him dead while he slept, unsuspecting in his hideout. The rapper's debt was much regretted by the people who regarded him as an avenger of their wrongs. His memory is still fresh in Ulster, where every cave is pointed out as being a hideout of the daring Redmond O'Hanlon, and in a small ancient graveyard, in Tander the locals point out, among the green mounds, the notorious outlaw's grave. Roger Boyle, 1st Earl of Orrery, had once declared that When he considered the memory of wrong which the Irish so tenaciously cherished, he feared that Ireland would be always disturbed. One of the patriots of another generation echoed those same sentiments when he said, Ireland on free will never be at peace. This prophecy has come through even down to more recent times when outlaws disturbed the peace and were a menace to the planters. The Lord Lieutenant, Ormond loved Catholics as little as he loved O'Hanlon and his fellow outlaws. He said in 1680 that he would rather be rid of popish priests than of gout, according to Cox. But he was a courtier, and he knew the feelings of Charles the Second and his brother, the Duke of York, who was Catholic. And whatever his own desires were, he desisted from any fresh persecutions. He looked on scowling in the knowledge that the king's wife and mother were also Catholic. By an act of 1673, called the Test Acts, which rendered Catholics incapable of holding civil or military office, James, the Duke of York, was deprived of his position of Lord High Admiral, and within the next year his daughter Mary was taken from him to be brought up a Protestant. It was not until 1828 that the Conservative government repealed the Test Acts with little controversy. However, when Charles II died, James became king, and it was perceived that any opposition to a Catholic king would bring another civil war. There were many who still remembered the civil war between Parliament and king, and did not want the horrors repeated. They got to thinking that their was no danger at the establishment religion being disturbed because the children of James, by a former marriage, were Protestant, but his new wife gave birth to a son in 1688, and immediately fears began to be expressed of a succession of Catholic kings in Protestant England, and this would not be tolerated. William of Orange was invited to England to defend the Protestant religion. He was married to a daughter of King James, and therefore his son in law. At the end of 1688, William landed with a large army, and James, deserted by his so called friends, did not have the courage to fight for his crown. James took refuge in France, where he arrived on Christmas Day, 1688. His queen and infant son having been conveyed there some time previously, the revolutionary party, affected to think the escape of the King as abdication, the theory being that by not waiting to be beheaded, he had forfeited the throne. England and Scotland declared for the Revolution, Ireland declared for King James, but the Protestants and Cromwellians in Ireland declared their adherence to the English cause, and began to flock from all sides into Ulster, bringing with them their arms and ammunition. Therein lies another unfortunate start to another chapter in Ireland's struggle, in a war which was entirely outside their making, but brought about by a family squabble among royalty to satisfy their religious differences, and that of the English nation. Ireland's participation in the eventual war was unfortunate, and leads ordinary people to think that it was because of that struggle that the Northern Ireland problem stemmed, when in fact it had started long before, in the reign of James I and Elizabeth I. But it led to Ireland being crippled once again, with further penal laws and forced emigration, which went on for another couple of centuries, during which the Irish Catholics were trampled and beaten, unjustly, by the English aggressor. It was unfortunate that Ireland backed the loser King James, as English royalty had never been a friend to Ireland, and had never apologised for the wrongs inflicted over eight centuries in the land of the golden sunset. According to Encyclopedia of Irish History and Culture, diversification was evident in the destination of Irish exports after 1667. A flourishing transatlantic trade developed to the West Indies and the American colonies. Ireland exported barrelled beef and livestock, and imported large quantities of tobacco. In 1665, Ireland imported £1.8 million of tobacco, and by the mid-1680s, an average of £2.8 million were arriving annually. The continental market was also developed, and France in particular imported large amounts of Irish butter. By 1683, only 30% of Irish exports were directed toward England. Thus by the 1680s the Irish economy had sufficiently reorganised itself, both internally and externally, to meet a changed economic relationship with England, and was showing signs of unprecedented prosperity. Though the outbreak of the Williamite Wars in 1689 served as a reminder of Ireland's continued political subordination to England, physical destruction and depopulation were not extensive and the Irish economy emerged largely unscathed. King William III, 1650 to 1702, was the only child of William II, Prince of Orange, who died a week before his birth, and Mary, Princess of Orange, the daughter of King Charles I of England. In 1677, during the reign of his uncle, King Charles II of England, he married his cousin Mary, the 15-year-old daughter of Charles II's brother, James, Duke of York. A Protestant, William participated in several wars against the powerful Catholic King Louis XIV of France in coalition with both Protestant and Catholic powers in Europe. Many Protestants heralded him as a champion of their faith. In 1685, his Catholic uncle and father-in-law, James, became King of England, Scotland and Ireland. James's reign was unpopular with the Protestant majority in Britain, who feared a revival of Catholicism. Supported by a group of influential British political and religious leaders, William invaded England in what became known as the Glorious Revolution. In 1688, he landed at the southwestern English port of Brixham. Shortly afterwards, James was deposed. William's reputation as a staunch Protestant, enabled him and his wife to take power in England. During the early years of his reign, William was occupied abroad with the Nine Years' War, sixteen eighty eight to ninety seven, leaving Mary II to govern the kingdom alone. When William was away fighting, his wife Mary II governed the realm, but acted on his advice. Each time he returned to England, Mary gave up her power to him without reservation an arrangement that lasted for the rest of mary's life mary ii died of smallpox on the 28th of december 1694 leaving william iii to rule alone despite his conversion to anglicanism william's popularity in england plummeted during his reign as a sole monarch william dissolved parliament in 1695 and the new parliament that assembled that year was led by the Whigs. Whig was a term of abuse applied to those who wanted to exclude James on the grounds that he was a Roman Catholic. The fervent Tory, Samuel Johnson, often joked that the first Whig was the devil. There was a considerable surge in support for William following the exposure of a Jacobite plan to assassinate him in 1696 and return his father-in-law, James II, to the throne. Parliament passed a bill of attainer against the ringleader, Sir John Fenwick, and he was beheaded in 1697. William of Orange was without children, and the death in 1700 of his nephew, Prince William, Duke of Gloucester, the son of his sister-in-law Anne, threatened the Protestant succession. In 1702, William died of pneumonia, a complication from a broken collarbone following a fall from his horse. Ironically, the horse had been confiscated from Sir John Fenwick, one of the Jacobites who had conspired against him. William of Orange was buried in Westminster Abbey alongside his wife. His sister-in-law and cousin Anne became Queen Regnant of England, Scotland and Ireland. He was known as King Billy in Ireland, and his victory at the Battle of the Boyne on the 12th of July, 1690, is commemorated by Unionists each year on that date, when the Orange Order march in street parades with lambeg drums and fife and drum bands, which display orange colours in his honour. When William of Orange entered London in 1688, he was immediately met by an unruly mob shouting "Death to all Papists." and William and Mary, daughter of James II, were crowned together as king and queen at Westminster Abbey on the 11th of April 1689 by the Bishop of London, Henry Compton. Normally the coronation is performed by the Archbishop of Canterbury, but the Archbishop at the time, William Sancroft, refused to recognise James's removal. In Ireland too, the Puritans, Protestants and Presbyterians were his greatest supporters, and hailed him as their champion, forming forces to fight with him to crush all the Catholics in Ireland. They already had flocked to Derry and armed themselves with all the arms necessary for battle, whereas the Catholics were forbidden to hold arms under pain of death. After minor skirmishes in April 1690, Puritans and other Protestants fled to their kin within the walls of Derry and set up in opposition to the Catholics, determined to hold off What they perceived as their enemy. James II and his French forces arrived in March 1690 and thought Derry would submit because as a city blockaded there were no provisions entering it and its people must be starving. The governor named Robert Lundy within the walls advised that provisions would only last about 10 days and some of the troops within shared his views. Captain Murray, on the other hand, denounced this as treachery, and most people in the city supported him. Robert Lundy was a Scottish army officer, best known for serving as Governor of Derry during the early stages of the siege. Lundy had pursued a military career, serving in the Earl of Dumbarton's regiment in the French army of Louis Fourteenth. He had risen to rank of captain, when the regiment returned to Scotland in 1678, where it was renamed the Royal Scots. Lundy continued to serve with the regiment when it was sent out to reinforce the Tangier garrison in October 1680, and he was wounded during a battle with the local Moroccan forces during the Great Siege of Tangier. He married an Irish wife, Martha Davies, whose father Roland Davies became the Dean of Cork, and through her family connections he secured promotion to Lieutenant-Colonel in the Royal Irish Army. In 1688 he was at Dublin in the regiment of Viscount Mountjoy. In 1687 James II replaced Ormond with Richard Talbot and introduced a policy of replacing Protestant officers with Catholic ones in the Irish Army. Mountjoy was one of the few Protestants remaining in the army and he could protect his Protestant soldiers and officers, such as Lundy. A strategy was prepared by Mountjoy and Lundy to assume control of Derry, and they succeeded in embedding a small garrison of predominantly Protestant troops under the command first of Mountjoy and then of Lundy, who assumed the title of governor. However, popular feelings in Derry ran so strongly in favour of King William of Orange that Lundy declared himself an adherent of king william III, and he obtained from him a commission confirming his appointment as williamite governor of derry from december 1688 to march 1689 Lundy had the walls and the gates repaired to protect the city refitted gun carriages and musket stocks removed buildings outside the walls which might provide cover to besiegers purchased powder cannonballs matchlocks, and had protective outworks built. Lundy's motivation is not known. What is certain is that from the moment Derry was threatened by the troops of King James, Lundy used all his endeavours to paralyze the defence of the city. In april sixteen eighty nine, he was in command of a force of Protestants who encountered some troops under Richard Hamilton at Straban. When instead of holding his ground, he told his men that all was lost, and ordered them to fend for themselves. He himself was the first to take flight back to Derry. King James, then at Oma, on his way to the north, similarly turned in flight towards Dublin on hearing of the skirmish, but returned next day on receiving the true account of the occurrence. On the 14th of April, English ships appeared in the foil, with reinforcements for Lundy under Colonel John Cunningham, and Solomon Richards. Lundy dissuaded Cunningham from landing his regiments, saying that a defence of Derry was hopeless, and that he himself intended to withdraw secretly from the city. At the same time, he sent to the headquarters of James II a promise to surrender the city. As soon as this became known to the citizens, Lundy's life was in danger, and he was vehemently accused of treachery. When the enemy appeared before the walls, Lundy gave orders that there should be no firing, but all authority had passed out of his hands. The people took up arms under the direction of Major Henry Baker and Captain Adam Murray, who organised a famous defence in conjunction with Reverend George Walker. Lundy, to avoid popular vengeance, hid himself until nightfall, when, by the convivance of Walker and Murray, he made his escape in disguise as a porter. Lundy was apprehended in western Scotland, imprisoned at Dumbarton Castle, and then sent to the Tower of London. He was excluded from the Act of Indemnity in 1690. An effort was made to send him for trial at Derry, but this was argued against because it was evident that Lundy still retained the support of influential people there. As Reverend George Walker described this, He had a faction for him in the town. After an inquiry in London, he was cleared of charges of treason and returned to military service. From 1704 to 1712, he was Adjutant General of the King of Portugal's forces in the Queen of England's pay during the War of Spanish Succession and defended Gibraltar against the French. In 1707, he was captured by the French but was exchanged a year later And died in 1717. Lundy is reviled by Ulster Unionism as a traitor to this very day, and his effigy is burned during the celebrations to mark the anniversary of the shutting of the gates of Derry in 1688. Much like Judas, his name has become a byword for traitor amongst Unionists and Loyalists. Ian Paisley regularly denounced people, including Margaret Thatcher, Terence O'Neill, and David Trimble, as Lundy's. Their guns were now trained on King James and his troops as they approached the gates of Derry. But in the confusion, two regiments who supported Lundy left the city. Lundy was disguised as a porter, and he embarked with the hungry soldiers for London. For some unknown reason, James II appointed a French officer to take charge while he left for Dublin, on the 16th of April, 1690. And when Derry City first closed its gates, the rector within was the Reverend George Walker, a product of Calvinism. He was bigoted and intolerant, and went about the city proselytizing and praying damnation on those who disagreed with him. Day after day he screamed fierce invectives against popery. The fiery zeal of this preacher was so infectious that the congregation And military were inflamed to such an extent that they believed their fighting against James to be the work of God. Reverend George Walker, a doctor of divinity, was joint governor of Derry alongside with Robert Lundy during the siege of Derry in 1689 and received the thanks of the House of Commons for his work. He was killed at the Battle of the Boyne on the twelfth of July, 1690, whilst going to the aid of Frederick Schomberg first duke of Schomburg, commander-in-chief of all Williamite forces in Ireland, who was wounded during the crossing of the river in the early part of the battle. Walker was originally buried at the battlefield, but at the insistence of his widow, his body was later exhumed and buried inside the church at Castle Caulfield, County Tyrone. His body was later rediscovered and reinterred next to that of his wife but not before a cast was taken of his skull. The Walker plint on the Derry city walls, which was completed in 1828, remains in his memory, although the column that stood on the plint was destroyed in an IRA bomb attack in 1973. The blockade of Derry continued with some skirmishes, but those within held out despite offers of food. Without proper provisions, the soldiers on duty became ill, and many died. Sickness was everywhere, and death and mourning were in every house. Hunger affected the whole population, so much so that it was reported. They had to eat weeds and grass, leaves and bark, a mouse sold for six pennies, a rat for a shilling, a cat for four times that of a rat, and the hind leg of a dog went for five shillings. On the 28th of July 1690, two vessels, escorted by a frigate, approached up the river Foyle. This was one of the several attempts to lift the blockade, which became known as the Siege of Derry. The vessels kept coming despite being fired upon. While they suffered some small casualties, they eventually arrived at the quay that night. And three days later, the siege was ended. The Reverend Walker was later named Bishop of Derry by King William and accompanied his troops as chaplain, but was unlucky to be later shot and killed at the Battle of the Boyne, where the Williamite forces secured victory. James II, in defeat, fled to Dublin, where he told a friend that the Irish had shamefully run away, to which the instant reply was, but your Majesty won the race, whereupon he left for France in July 1690. All over Europe, merchants and craftsmen defended their privileges through their guilds. These guilds were organisations dating back to the medieval times, and they were often very powerful. A look at Paris in 1696 shows how far these guilds would go to protect their members' position. The city's button makers had been in uproar and were barging into tailor shops, searching for illegal buttons that threatened their domination of the trade in silk buttons. The problem was that some enterprising tailors had begun to make buttons out of wool. The guild of button makers complained, and the authorities issued a ban on woolen buttons. The shopkeepers of Paris ignored the ban, and now the wardens of the guild were hunting down rebellious tailors, and even trying to arrest anyone in the street, found wearing woolen buttons. Francois Quesny, 1694 to 1774, would later say, button makers earn a profit from selling buttons only because of the labor and skill they use up in making them. All they do is transfer what nature has already created, and he called manufacturing a sterile activity.